Thank you, Steve. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am not sure what is more challenging, whether it's following John MacArthur on the stage or preaching to an audience with bellies full of turkey, as one who also has a belly full of turkey, although I'm glad that last round of music, Steve, I think, I think helped us on that, on the energy side. So I am eager to do my very best tonight to open God's Word before us. So let me just ask you to turn with me once again tonight to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11 this evening. As I mentioned last night in our three evening sessions for the conference, we're going to be looking at this central section of Mark's Gospel, where after taking the first eight chapters to demonstrate, as it were, that Jesus is who Mark announces him to be right at the very beginning of his gospel. This is the beginning, remember Mark said, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark lays out in the first eight chapters of his gospel this demonstration, Jesus is who I've announced him from the outset to be. But now having done that, Mark focuses our attention very sharply on Jesus' call to discipleship, to following him. He's, he said those words, follow me, as early as chapter 1, verse 17, but it's really in chapter 8, following that confession, that watershed moment in Mark's gospel, where Peter, now the first human being in the gospel to speak the words, you are the Christ, following that watershed moment, we now have Mark's gospel just focusing so clearly on this call to follow Christ. And it's really in those words in chapter 8 where Jesus speaks so starkly, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And it's really at that point that there begins this very intense and sustained focus on discipleship. The rest of chapter 8, all of chapter 9, all of chapter 10, all of chapter 11, chapter 12, even into chapter 13. In these chapters, Jesus is teaching his disciples what it means to follow him. And he is using every available circumstance. He is using every available opportunity that presents itself to teach his disciples. And Mark is now making sure that we as readers of the gospel are hearing Jesus calling us to a total commitment, an absolute commitment to following him. Last night we saw how on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus kept telling his disciples over and over again about his coming death, and resurrection, well, now they've arrived in Jerusalem. And some very unusual events transpire, and Jesus uses them to teach about discipleship. I've tried to capture that a little bit in the title for this evening's message, A Fig Tree, The Temple, and Radically following Jesus. So let's read this passage, Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 11, 
And you follow along or just listen carefully as I read. And while I'm reading, may I encourage you again what I encouraged you to do last night. Be asking the question, what does this have to do with me? Mark chapter 11, verse 11. This is God's word. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's just pray again and ask for God's help here. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this book that presents him to us and helps us to see him and to know him, to believe in him. And Father, I pray that by your Spirit now that you would cause there to be through the preaching of the Word an apprehension of this Christ. God, would you cause faith to rise in our hearts. I pray that our hearing of the word would be combined with faith, that we might believe what you call us to believe here, that we might respond rightly to your word. So, Father, we're asking you to do all that you intend to do through this, your word. I pray that where 
conviction is needed, that you would convict. Where correction is needed, God, that you would correct us. Father, I, I do pray that you would create faith and that you would strengthen faith. God, you're able to do all of these things. You promise that you will do these things. And so we ask you, God, I'm praying not only for us this evening, but for each of the churches that are represented here. We want there to be real, deep, spiritual life. And so, God, would you use the preaching of the Word and our hearing of the Word to bring about renewal in our own lives and by extension, God, renewal in our churches. We pray for that, believing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's remind ourselves uh, this evening, we need to do this every once in a while to remind ourselves what God intends the Bible for. What is God's purpose in this book? Well, this book is given to us that we might know God, not just intellectually, but that we might know God and believe God and trust God, and this book is also given to us that we might know how to live. These are the reasons why God has made himself known, that we might know him, believingly know him, and also that we might know how to live before him. That's what the Bible is for. And if I had to summarize what teaching, like what we're doing right now, what we're doing so much of in this conference, what teaching is for, I suppose I would say it like this. What the teacher standing here is supposed to do with this book, I think I'd say it this way. Read it, explain it, and apply it. Read the passage carefully and faithfully. Remember Paul's words to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Read it, then explain the passage carefully and faithfully, and apply the passage carefully and faithfully. So here's this passage I've just read with kind of unusual and unexpected things. What are we going to do with this? How does this tell us how to live? How should we apply this to ourselves? I mean, this passage with its fruitless and ultimately cursed fig tree, this passage with its busy but ultimately barren house of God and this passage which we know is ultimately about following Jesus because we know that's what Mark's gospel is about following Jesus but it's just not immediately clear how does this relate to us how are we supposed to apply this to us what are we supposed to do with this passage in Mark chapter 11 well let's start by making sure that we're clear on what Mark has written for us here in his gospel. Let me do my best to explain what's here. Jesus and his disciples have come to Jerusalem. It's springtime. Think about the month of April. Passover is just a few days away. There are so many people in Jerusalem. The city is full of people. There's all sorts of activity. There's all sorts of excitement. It's Sunday. Jesus has already had a full day. That's a long day's walk from Jericho, 18 miles or so up to the city of Jerusalem, and it's now late in the day, and they will spend, Jesus and the disciples will spend the night in Bethany, but first, Jesus goes into the city, into the temple area, and you see what it says there in verse 11. 
He looked around at everything, and when he had done so, it was already late, and so he went out of the city. That phrase, he looked around at everything, kind of intrigues me. What really was Jesus doing that Sunday evening? Was this just him not having been in the city of Jerusalem maybe for a while and wanting to see the sights again, almost like a tourist, you know, taking in the great architecture of this newly renovated temple with all of its splendor? Is that, is that what Jesus was doing? Or was this more maybe a personally poignant moment for Jesus, knowing what was going to happen to him in that very city? He knew what was coming. So is this maybe a moment of Jesus just kind of maybe one last time looking around the city? There is a scene in one of my favorite movies, the movie Glory, that... Um, Colonel Robert Shaw, who is now leading the 54th Massachusetts, I believe it was, the very first black regiment of Civil War soldiers, and they are, they're, they're about to, he's about to lead them on a charge uh, against Fort Wagner down in Charleston Harbor, and he knows that the charge that's going to happen at the end of the day will likely mean the death of them all. He realizes that, and so there is this scene. I get choked up every time I see it. Colonel Shaw takes his horse and he rides along the beach and at one point he gets off his horse and kind of slaps his horse on the rump and off it runs and he's there and he looks out of, uh, uh, over the ocean and, and realizes he's looking out at the ocean for the very last time. In fact, he's looking out at anything for the very last time. Is that what's happening here? Jesus kind of coming into the temple, this moment of personal reflection, knowing what's coming soon, or... Was this Jesus purposefully going into the temple to see what was going on there? Kind of a, almost a reconnaissance mission to get a sense for what was actually happening in the temple, to get a sense for how God's house was really being put to use. Was it being used for the purpose that God intended that place to be used for? Well, in light of what happens the next day, in fact, in light of what all that happens the next day, I believe that's what Jesus was doing. He's not just there seeing the sights. It's not a moment of kind of personal reflection. No, he's observing what's going on in the temple. Jesus looks around. He sees all that's happening. It's late in the day, so after this brief visit... He and the disciples make their way the two miles back out of the city into the little village of Bethany where they will spend the night. The next morning, it's Monday, they are making their way back into the city of Jerusalem and they're walking and while they're walking, Jesus sees a fig tree there alongside of the road up ahead and he's a little hungry so he goes over to the fig tree which is in full leaf. Mark makes a point of this twice. He says, it's full of leaves, it's all covered with leaves, but as he gets to the tree, he finds no fruit, no figs, only leaves. And then we read this initially perplexing statement that Mark adds there at the end of verse 13. Do you see it? For it was not the season for figs. Mark is telling us very clearly the reason Jesus didn't find any figs on that tree is because it wasn't the season 
for figs. Mark is emphasizing that for a reason. Could actually translate that phrase at the end of verse 13, something like this. And the significant thing about this is that it was not even the season for figs. It's kind of perplexing, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't Jesus have known that? Wouldn't that kind of be common knowledge that this isn't the season for figs, just like any first grader knows that apples don't come until apple season? You go out for a walk in the orchard in the middle of April, you're not going to find any apples. So yes, I think we can say with confidence, Jesus knew it wasn't the season for figs, which just makes this all the more perplexing. Unless, unless Jesus is not really looking for figs. Jesus is not primarily looking for literal figs on that tree, but is primarily making a very significant prophetic statement. Jesus, finding no figs, speaks these words that we see there in verse 14. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And Mark makes a point of telling us that the disciples heard that. In fact, Jesus meant them to hear those words. And again, on the face of it, what he says really doesn't show very well for Jesus, does it? It just seems so unreasonable. I mean, people could stumble over that kind of thing in their Bibles, couldn't they? What's going on here? You don't have to be a tree lover a tree hugger, to feel like, whoa, Jesus, unfair. And besides, it seems a little bit out of character for Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, we've looked at all of these miracles in the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel, and all that Jesus does is fix stuff. He's healing things. He's, he's making things better. What is this? And then to add even more weight to this, this is the very last miracle that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark. This one. All of these wonderful things he's done, think of them all. Healing lepers, healing blind people, raising a little girl from the dead, fixing things wherever he goes, and then this. When, when I would play catch with my children when they were younger, we had kind of a family rule as they were growing up. Every time we'd go out to play catch, the rule was you, you can't end on a miss which my children learned to, to, to use to kind of extend catch time. Can't end on a miss, Dad. Got to keep going. You just, that was a family rule. You can't end on a miss. And sometimes you read this, and we might be tempted, knowing that this is the very last miracle that we're going to read about in the Gospel of Mark. You're tempted to say, Jesus, you're kind of ending on a miss here. This looks really bad. Well, they continue on their way, and they come into Jerusalem, and as soon as they enter the city, they are immediately in the temple area. If you were to look at a map of Jerusalem, for this period of time, you'd be amazed by how much of the area of the city was occupied by the temple and its surrounding courts. 25% of the land area of the city of Jerusalem is occupied by what was called the temple precincts. In fact, one historian has said that Jerusalem was not so much a city with a temple in it, it was more like a temple with a small city attached to it. That's how 
big the temple was, both in its physical presence and in its symbolic presence in the city of Jerusalem. And if you were to look, you would see that the temple was right there, kind of on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. So it was the first thing that you'd come into if you were entering from the east. You'd come through the Golden Gate, these big, kind of arched, stonework, these gates, these doors, this big structure, and then into this wide open space, this huge outer court with the temple building there kind of right in front of you, just a bit off to the right as you entered into this court, this massive structure there in front of you. It was an impressive place, but now you're in this court, and this court was called the court of the Gentiles. This was the only part of the temple grounds where non-Jewish people were allowed. It was the biggest area surrounding the temple. You had to go through the court of the Gentiles to get to the other areas. And all of this business operation was set up there. I mean, what a setup this was. Jesus and the disciples walked in. They would have seen just a huge mass of people buying and selling animals by the dozens, booths and stalls and people exchanging money at the money changers' tables, thousands of people busying themselves, thousands of animals to be sacrificed. Just imagine some scene kind of in your mind of some oriental bazaar, some big outdoor market, and you begin to get a picture of what was happening here. And this was the place where the Gentiles we're supposed to be able to find God through quiet reflection and prayer. All this business was necessary to meet the needs of the Passover, but it was supposed to happen outside the temple. In fact, it was supposed to happen outside the city walls for centuries. That's how it had been done. And as best we can tell at this time, It had just recently been brought into the temple under the authority of Caiaphas, the high priest, which was a flagrant violation of the divinely announced purpose of that court. You know, 200 years before this, um, in the year 164 BC, BC, there was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Maybe you've heard of him. He was a Syrian king. And he conquered Jerusalem, and during that kind of invasion, he had just flagrantly defiled the temple by putting an altar to the god Zeus right in the temple space, and beginning to worship Zeus right there in the temple space. And it was the glory of the Maccabean revolt, which, by the way, Jews celebrated Hanukkah. It was the glory of the Maccabees that they, that they restored the temple But what Antiochus had done in the temple through this just blatant idolatry, here the Jewish religious leaders themselves have allowed to happen. This defilement of the temple to increase their business, probably to line their own pockets. So as Jesus comes into this, we have an angry king, Jesus. This is not a sudden outburst that we see here. Remember, Jesus had come to see this the evening before. So this was, this was controlled, authoritative, righteous anger. Jesus is saying this 
is not what the temple court was for. Apparently, as best we can tell from verse 15, as soon as he entered into that temple court that morning, Jesus starts just wrecking havoc. He goes to the booths where people were buying and selling, and with his words, by the sheer force of his presence, he sends them scurrying. He walks over to the tables of the money changers, and as they realize what he's about to do, and they desperately try to kind of gather their piles of money and get out of the way, he takes the edges of those tables and flips them over. And he goes to the smaller booths where the pigeons were being sold. And he flips over the benches there that the people were sitting on. I mean, you can just imagine this tumult in the court of Gentiles. All of this yelling and cursing and squawking and banging. And the disciples probably staring wide-eyed at Jesus. And then, pausing probably to catch his breath... And let things settle down for a moment with everyone now in that entire place in a state of shock. Everybody's eyes in the whole place would be on him. Jesus says, is it not written? Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, listen now, for the nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, the ethne. This place is a place for all people to come. Here is Jesus clearing the temple, the court of the Gentiles, for its proper use. So what he says in verse 17 is the explanation for what he does in verses 15 and 16. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. See, the place, the place was busy, right? I mean, my goodness, it was bursting with activity. Lots of people, lots of stuff going on, and it was all ostensibly religious activity. It was very, very leafy, but no fruit. No fruit. No true spiritual life. They weren't honoring God's purpose for the place to be used for praying and connecting with God. Well, as we might expect, the religious leaders kind of get wind of what's happened. So we see there in verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. Now, as soon as you hear those words, chief priests and scribes, A little buzzer should go off in your brain if you've been faithfully reading through Mark's gospel. In fact, not just a buzzer, an alarm should go off in your brain. Because you know the last time you heard that phrase, chief priests and scribes? Remember back in chapter 10, verse 32? And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And that was the third time the disciples had heard that, third time we've heard it. So the minute we read those words, the chief priests and the scribes, we should be thinking, oh no, this is it, here it goes. And sure enough, they're looking for a way to destroy him. Now we don't know how long this whole thing took, In fact, in verse 19, Mark just kind of very abruptly tells us, 
And when they eat, when evening came, they went out of the city, so back to Bethany they go for the night. But now, it's the next morning, it's Tuesday. Jesus and his disciples are once again going back into the city from Bethany, the same road that they had traveled the morning before, and they come to that same fig tree. And Peter is the first one to say, hey, Jesus, look, that fig tree that you pronounced judgment on, look at it. And there was this tree, yesterday in full leaf, now withered and dried up, and Jesus says, have faith in God. See that? Jesus says, I want you, don't forget what Jesus is doing in these chapters. He is teaching them what it means to be disciples. He sees the fig tree, And he says to them, I want you to have faith in God. Now folks, this is a very interesting moment right here. That it's important that we get right. When Jesus says that, does he mean have faith in God and you can do stuff like what I just did? Is that what he means? Is that what he's saying? Because what he says in verse 23 could seem to point in that direction. Verse 23, And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it it will be done for him. So is that what he's saying there? Have faith in God, and you can do stuff like curse this fig tree too? Or, there's something else going on here. Well, you can probably sense from my saying it that way that I believe there is something else going on here. And I hope we've already learned not to be too quickly satisfied with the surface of things. I believe there is something else going on in what Jesus is saying there in verses 23 through 25, which I'll get to in just a moment. So that's what happened. Now, what are we going to make of this? What does this have to do with us? What is this calling for from us? How is this telling us how to live as disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, I believe the key is found in two places in this passage. It's found first in the connection between the fig tree and the temple, something that is going to get us on the right path. And I think it's found second in what Jesus says there in verses 23 through 25. So let's look at those two places. First, let's look at the connection between the fig tree and the temple, which I've already hinted at pretty strongly. The way that Mark writes this, with the account of Jesus in the temple sandwich, you notice this? Between the two times that they stand before that fig tree, it's on purpose. It tells us that what happened with the fig tree is somehow very closely related to what happened there in the temple. Mark's trying to communicate something there. We need to see that the fig tree is symbolic of what's happening with the spiritual life of the people in Jerusalem. It's all leaf and no fruit, which is very much in contrast to what Jesus is looking for from his disciples. Many times in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were were likened to a fig tree. You see this over and over again in the prophets here. Listen to just one example. This is from the prophet Jeremiah. 
When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no figs on the fig tree. What I gave them has passed away from them. It's Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13. I want to read that again because the content of that verse is ever so important. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there is no figs on the fig tree. What I gave them has passed away from them. Listen, Jesus is very concerned about the spiritual state of the people there in Jerusalem. There's all this activity going on in the temple, all of this preparation for Passover. The spiritual tree of the religious people is full of showy leaves, but there seems to be no fruit of real faith, real repentance. So the fig tree and what Jesus does to it is symbolic. The fig tree is symbolic of the absence of spiritual fruit. And what Jesus does to the fig tree is symbolic of God's judgment on fruitless religion. So when Mark tells us very clearly back in verse 13, it wasn't the season for figs. Mark is actually heightening the point. Yes, horticulturally speaking, Jesus' action was unreasonable. But Jesus is dealing with a reality a million times more important than horticulture. He is saying, God has supernaturally enabled you to bear fruit. God has supernaturally enabled you to bear fruit. He has given you something. He's made something available to you. He has special relationship with you. And that rises way beyond the natural limitations that you have. He has called you to live out of that reality and that provision. Remember what Jesus says in verse 22? Have faith in God. He is saying, you have a great God. A powerful, real God. Live with a consciousness of and a confidence in God's power and His faithfulness with His power toward you. Put simply, Jesus wants His disciples to bear fruit, to be fruit-bearing disciples. Which brings us to the second key place we need to look. And it's the things that Jesus says in verses 23 through 25. Now again... Remember what Jesus said in verse 22. He's looking at his disciples. He's teaching them what it means to be a follower of Christ. And he is saying to them, I want you to have faith in God. That's a call to live a life of faith, to live a life of of action consistent with that faith. I want you, Jesus is saying, unlike these people, just kind of going through the motions, I want you to have an active faith in God and thereby be fruitful. To live with a confidence in the power and the goodness of God who accomplishes everything and to act in that confidence which will be fruit-bearing in your life. You see, Jesus is teaching his disciples here. He wants them to bear fruit. He wants us to bear fruit like... I want to just pause here for a second and make sure we're not missing what I'm trying to do here. Sometimes when we think about following Christ, we can turn this into some kind of big, hard-to-define monolith. 
following Jesus, trying to be a disciple, and we're not really sure what that means. What we need is the specificity of God's word. I tried to do this last night. Following Jesus means serving others. Where did I get that? Right out of Mark chapter 10. So when we try to define what does it mean to follow Christ, we need to take our cue from the specifics of what God's Word is teaching here. And so I want to show you the specific fruit that Jesus outlines here as a result of our living by faith in God. Make sure that we see the connections here so we don't let this just be some vague thing when we talk about following Jesus. So he says to them, I want you to bear fruit like, please notice this, the fruit of prayer. Jesus says, have faith in God, pray. Faith is trust in God's help, God's provision, God's supply, and it takes the form of prayer. Can I say it this way? Prayer is the voice of faith. Faith takes the form of prayer. So what is affirmed here in verses 23 and 24 is God's absolute readiness to respond to a faith that prays. Don't make the mistake of thinking this throwing a mountain into the sea is some parallel to the fig tree. It has nothing to do with the fig tree. This is what it looks like to have faith in God. Pray for things that are beyond human possibility, and God hears those prayers and responds to those prayers. So what is affirmed here is God's absolute readiness to respond to a faith that prays. Don't stumble, folks, over that mountain thing in verse 23. That is a proverbial statement for what is humanly impossible. That's what it means. Something beyond human capacity, something that calls for faith in God. Jesus says, come to God, live by faith, pray, I'm looking for that kind of fruit in your life. But that's not the only fruit he's looking for. Look at verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. You see what Jesus is saying here? Jesus says, have faith in God, forgive others. Trust God to supply what you need to bear that fruit in your life. But... Do you see what verse 25 said, though? Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, might forgive your trespasses. Is that right? I mean, it seems like that's saying that somehow our experience of God's forgiveness depends on our forgiving others. And that's right. Folks, there's something here we must not miss, and we'll miss it if we too quickly qualify that and say, well, that's really saying, and we try to smooth it over. Now, obviously, it's not contradicting what Jesus teaches elsewhere about forgiveness as something that God does based on our response of repentance and faith, but Jesus is saying that living by faith will bear the fruit of forgiveness 
and a failure to forgive will affect the efficacy of your prayers for forgiveness. So have faith in God and bear the fruit of forgiving others. Now, there's one other fruit that I want us to notice here. And for that, I want to go back up to what Jesus said back in verse 17. Another fruit of having faith in God is an active and heartfelt concern for people who don't know God, for them to know God. I mean, it strikes me how God has set the temple up as a place of worship for his people, but surrounded. Did you notice this? The Jews couldn't get to where they wanted to get without going through the court of Gentiles. Surrounded in close proximity by this, this court such that you, you, I mean, you couldn't even get to the temple without passing through that place where the Gentiles were supposed to be. And Jesus says this place was meant to be a place of prayer, not just for you, but for all nations. So reach out and bear witness by your faith to those who are there in proximity to you. You know, in that Old Testament passage where Jesus is quoting, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples, in that very same context, Isaiah chapter 56, in fact, it's the very next verse, Isaiah says, the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them with those who are already gathered. He wants there to be the fruit of concern for and witness to others who don't yet know God. Live by faith in God, Jesus says. Do things like pray and forgive others and bear witness to those around you and by so doing be fruitful instead of barren. So what's the point? How is this calling us to live? What's the application for us. What does it mean for us to follow Christ? Two words. Jesus is saying, bear fruit. God's people are supposed to bear fruit by the supernatural power of God, which is why we're called to live by faith in God. Or to put it another way, Jesus is calling us to radically follow Him by trusting fully in God and demonstrating that trust in our praying, in our forgiving, and in our witnessing. So let me wrap this up by bringing this all right close to home for us today. Jesus is calling us, you and me, to pray. So let me ask you tonight, is that a place where you need to bear fruit? And I'm not so much thinking here about a scheduled time of prayer each morning as I am a purpose to pray about the stuff in your life that seems bigger than what you can do. I had a conversation with my son a couple months ago now, his two older sisters are at Wheaton College, and I just I, I sat down with him and I said, buddy, you're going to be off to school this coming fall, and your experience is going to be very different than your sister's. They're at Wheaton College. They're sitting in classes that begin with prayer. Um, they are under the leadership of a man for whom I have incredible respect. Phil Riken is leading that school and helping them to fulfill their mission of, of learning for Christ and his kingdom. 
It is an amazing place. When I talk to my daughters, I'm regularly hearing them talk about how helpful to their faith their experience at Wheaton College is. And I'm telling my son, he's not going to Wheaton College. He's going to Northwestern University. I'm saying, buddy, your experience is going to be very different from your sisters. They're not going to be praying in the classrooms there. Um, I don't know the spiritual state of the president of your school, but I, I just don't think it's going to be the same kind of leadership as Dr. Riken is providing. What was my point in having this conversation? Buddy, this is a whole lot bigger. You need to be praying about this, that God would provide for you fellowship and strength in a situation that's going to be very different than what Abby and Maddie are experiencing. This is what he's calling for from us. Coming to God in faith with the certainty that God can deal with every situation and any difficulty and that with him nothing is impossible. That's what he's calling for. That's a big part of what radically following Jesus looks like. It's a fruit of real spiritual life and it's something he delights in. And Jesus is calling us to forgive. Maybe this is a place that he's calling you to consider this evening, to pursue reconciliation, to pursue unity. Maybe there's a relationship that's strained because somebody sinned against you. And Jesus says, forgive. Forgive. Have faith in God. Forgive. That's what he's calling for, and that's a big part of what radically following him looks like. It's a fruit of real spiritual life, and it's something he delights to find. And Jesus is calling us to bear witness. I love this about this passage. This fruit of living by faith and following Jesus, let those in proximity to you see. Those that God has placed around you, let them see. Let them hear about your faith in God. Let them see your commitment to Jesus. God has made it such that there will be people who don't yet know him in close proximity to you all the time. I mean, I'm always amazed by how often in the Gospels Jesus radically changes a person and then tells them to be quiet, and they can't. And then we're told to go and tell, and too often... We won't. Wouldn't it be, I mean, think about this, wouldn't it be just so not good if someone discovered after many years of working alongside of you or living alongside of you that you're a Christian? You're a Christian? I never knew. I've known you all this time and I never knew that you were a Christian. Rather, let us faithfully bear witness in our lives, in our worship, in our conversation, in all that we do, and watch Jesus radically use that to save others. So let's ask, is this living by faith, following Jesus like this, really what I'm all about? Have I embraced this? I know, folks, we're busy, but are we busy with the right things? Am I living by faith? Am I growing in my living by faith? Am I bearing this kind of fruit? Just take one of these and come to God and say, I want to grow here. And folks, you know it's not up to you in one sense, in a huge sense. Jesus said it so clearly, I am the vine, you are the branches, 
abide in me and I abide in you and you'll bear fruit. If you don't abide in me, you won't be fruitful. This is an amazing thing. This is not self-made religion. The gospel is not a self-help project. In Christ, we are connected to the all-powerful God and our fruitfulness comes from God through Christ. Nonetheless, Jesus expects us to be so connected to him, to be so radically oriented to him, to be so radically following him that we live by faith and that we will bear this very kind of fruit that he speaks of here to God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, our desire is to attend rightly to your word so that it has the effect that you intended to have. So God, I pray that as we've sought to understand and hear and receive your word tonight, God, I pray again as I prayed last night that you would cause it to um, find a place, find soil in our hearts that it might grow and bear fruit that will last and that is pleasing to you. Father, we thank you again for Jesus Christ and we, we ask that you would help us to be right followers. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.